This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. The backstory on Joe Solis, did Diego Sanchez quit? What's the deal with his coach, Joshua Fabia? John Jones, pretty excited that Jan Blachowicz won. UFC Auckland preview, and we talk a little bit about Wilder and Fury. Even though this is an MMA show, it's probably the most exciting heavyweight matchup in boxing in many years. So we'll try to talk about that a little bit. I'm not going to give you any X's and O's, not really my wheelhouse, but let's uh, get into it. Uh, Joe's not here today. Unfortunately, uh, he can't make it, but fortunately for him, he's got the Bazooka Invitational kickboxing event here in Toronto. If you are in the area, feel free to stop by tonight. Friday, and you can check out all of the incredible kickboxing that this part of the city has to offer. You can go to Joe's Twitter account and find out uh, more information about that. But let's uh, start with Joe Solis. This is a story that I had been working on for about a week. And um, basically, let me run you through it. So, I mean, the gist of it is that I'm guessing you've probably read this by now if you're listening to this podcast but uh, or have heard others talk about it. But the gist of it is that Joe Solis who was a big topic of conversation after UFC 247, given the suspect uh, scorecards in the eyes of many coming out of that event, was uh, in the news for another reason. And uh, that news was courtesy of myself, doing a little bit of digging on Joe Solis and what his backstory is a little bit. And again, the gist of it is that he was judging a fight at UFC 247 where one of the head coaches was his jiu-jitsu coach who had given him a black belt uh, back in 2008, had awarded him a black belt. I don't want to say given him because I'm sure Joe Solis earned that black belt. But, uh, you know, that in and of itself is an issue. But the reason why I think a lot of people consider it to be a real issue is that if you look at that first round, that Joe Solis scored 10-9 for Giles, there's just no way you could have given that round to Giles. Like, you could pull people off the street and say, hey, have you watched mixed martial arts before? If they were like, no, no, I haven't. I'm more of a baseball guy. Well, sit down in this chair. I want you to watch one round of it, and I want you to tell me who you think won that round. What percentage of people do you think would give it to Trevin Giles? Like, I would think it's got to be, if you took 100 people, maybe one of them. If that, I'd be surprised if it was one of them, and I'd love to hear their explanation for why. But uh, that was the big red flag, really, is you see that he scored that round 10-9 10-9 for Giles. Now, that in and of itself, I mean, we've seen so many different bad decisions over the years in mixed martial arts. You know, what's a bad decision here or there? What's a bad round score? And we see them from time to time. And, you know, this one was pretty inexcusable. It's one of the worst I've seen. But, again, you kind of put that aside and you think, yeah, well, on to the next. UFC's in Auckland. Or it's, I guess it would be Rio Rancho after the last event. But, yeah, the UFC's in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Fun main event, Jan Bojovic, Corey Anderson. Let's see who's going to be next in line for John Jones, potentially. Well, everybody kind of just, you know, let it go. And uh, obviously they acknowledged that it wasn't great judging. and that. But again, Texas Commission, people automatically think, well, there's going to be some weird judging tonight. But uh, I didn't really stop there. I went on uh, Facebook. I found Joe Solis, the judge who... Uh, Gave Andre Ewell a 30-27 win. Gave John Jones four rounds against Dominic Reyes. And, of course, that one egregious round against uh, with James Krause facing uh, Trevin Giles. So I went on Facebook and uh, I said, hey, are you up for an interview? I'd love to hear your methodology on how you scored some of these fights. And he said, you know, 
politely declined and said, uh, the, you know, the commission says we're not really supposed to discuss our judgments or whatever. So, I, you know, that was fine. But I did notice something when I was on his Facebook page that we had mutual friends, three mutual friends. Two of them were people that, you know, they just follow my page. I don't really know who they are. But one name stood out, and that was Trevin Giles. Trevin Giles was a friend of both mine and Joe Solis on Facebook. And a lot of people pointed this out after my article came out, but it was in my article. I had stated it. So kudos to the Internet detectives there. But if you would have just read my article, you would have known that that was the case. So when I saw that he was friends with Trevin Giles, I, I kind of laughed and I said, well, that's weird. But, you know, Houston isn't the biggest MMA hotbed. There are probably only a handful of schools that are really high level, and I'm sure that a lot of them compete against each other in regional cards, regional events, amateur events, all that. I'm sure that there's the paths of Trevin Giles and Joe Solis have crossed before. In fact, I know that they've crossed because Joe Solis has also judged and refereed LFA fights. So I went down the rabbit hole a little bit and uh, did some digging and looked up Joe Solis' name in conjunction with Elite MMA and Elite Martial Arts and found uh, on a message board someone wrote that Joe Solis was an instructor there and suddenly, you know, the radar went off and I was like, okay, well, that's uh, interesting and I went and did some digging to see if I could find any other sources that would confirm that Joe Solis was, in fact, an instructor there. And there was nothing really online aside from that one forum post. But, you know, given that I used to be a producer, I have a lot of skills when it comes to finding information. And, of course, having a background in journalism helps you with that as well. So I went and found archived web pages. I looked up Elite MMA, and I noticed that Elite MMA's websites only went, I guess, started as of like 2010, 2011, something along those lines. And I couldn't really find any information there that suggested that Joe Solis was an instructor there. And I knew that Joe Solis at this time had his own gym. But I did find out that Elite MMA used to be known as Elite Martial Arts. So I went and looked up some archive pages of Elite Martial Arts and found that for years, Joe Solis was, in fact, an instructor there. He was a Jeet Kune Do instructor alongside Eric Williams, who was the head coach for Trevin Giles at Elite Martial Arts. And then I also came to find out that Joe Solis had earned his black belt under Eric Williams. And for those of you who might not understand what that means and what the significance of that is, you know, if you've been to a gym before and you've gotten, you know, a belt from an instructor, that's something that you hold dear to you. You know, like every belt that I earned in martial arts was a very, very fond memory for me. I remember in every class working hard, waiting to get those stripes, you know, like... Is today the day? You know, I really pushed myself today. Am I going to get a stripe? No? Okay, next class. But to get a black belt in jujitsu, like that's a 10-year commitment a lot of the time, and it's a very high honor. So when somebody gives you that high honor and awards you with a black belt, now I don't care if you haven't spoken to them in years. I don't care if, you know, to me that is a big deal. That's a major, major deal. So that's when I started to do, you know, some interviews and find out, you know, I called Big John McCarthy and said, hey, have you, uh, you know, do you think that this would be a, considered a conflict of interest? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I contacted the commission and said, hey, was a conflict of interest disclosed? And they couldn't really tell me whether one had been, but they did say that Joe Solis had written, I guess, checked off no when it came to whether or not he had a direct or indirect financial interest in the fight. Now, that to me, that's not 
a mistruth. You know, like I, I don't know if he has. I doubt that he has any sort of real financial interest in, you know, Trevin Giles winning that fight or anything along those lines. You know, I'm, I'm not going to accuse him of dishonesty there. That's not what I'm here to do. But I did reach out to Joe Solis again because I had spoken to him, I guess, earlier in the week and said, hey, uh, where did you earn your black belt? Now, I, I didn't know if he was going to answer me or not, but he, was, he answered me fairly quickly. He said, I got it in 2008 under Eric Williams. And my next question was, well, Eric Williams coached Trevin Giles. You know, do you think that that's a conflict of interest? Did you judge that fight? And he said, well, I haven't been an instructor there for eight years. I haven't really been in contact with him for eight years, so I don't think it's a conflict of interest. So with him saying that to me, I mean, I guess that he, you know, I, I can take a guess and maybe posit that perhaps he did not disclose that there was a conflict of interest. Now, I don't know this for a fact, because when I asked the commission, they said, we can't disclose that information in case there's some sort of appeal. And there is an appeal. In fact, there was an appeal that was going to be filed even before all of this came out. And now it only bolsters that appeal. But again, I mean, this is the Texas Commission. It's going to be at their discretion. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Luke Thomas said that he thinks the fight results should be overturned immediately. I don't know if that's how it works. I think that they need to go through an appeals process. So we'll see how that plays out. And then I reached out to Eric Williams. And I'll say this about Eric Williams. He was a gentleman. He was very honest with me. He did not hide any thing when it came to his past and his relationship with Joe Solis in past years. He, you know, was forthright with the fact that he gave Joe his black belt, that Joe was an instructor at his gym. And he actually said, he commended me and said, you know, listen, we need to do a better job of making sure that there isn't any sort of um, appearance of malfeasance, any sort of appearance that there's a conflict of interest. Like, you know, he commended me for doing the right thing, for looking into this. He didn't know that Joe Solis was going to be the judge. In fact, when I mentioned that Joe Solis was the judge, he said, you know, well, there's a lot of different Joes that work for the commission. Is it for sure him? And I said, yeah. I don't think he even really knew who the judge was going to be. Now, again, maybe he was not being totally forthright on that, but I tend to believe him. He was being very honest with me about every single thing that I asked him about. And uh, he didn't need to be. He could have said, well, like, listen, I'm not comfortable talking about this. No, but he was. he didn't. He didn't hide from the past interactions and, and relationship that he had with Joe Solis. And then I spoke to James Krause, and James Krause was not pleased. I had also spoken to James Krause's manager, Jason House, uh, and kind of talked him through what was happening and what I had learned. And James Krause was, you know, not pleased about this. You know, he said he felt like he'd been robbed. He said, and he was honest with me. He said, listen, losing that decision is not a big deal to me. Like, I, I can live with losing a decision. That was a close fight. And I think that it, it being a split decision or it going Giles' way, I, I don't think that there's a problem with that at all. And, I, and James Krause agrees with that. The issue is the first round. Only one judge scored it for Giles. It was Joe Solis. Now we know about this history. It's very weird. And I asked Joe if he could tell me his methodology for scoring that round. He's not allowed to do the the confidentiality of the commission and, the, the, you know, you need to get permission for the commission and I don't think the commission are going to give me that kind of uh, leeway to speak with Mr. Solis about that. So we'll see where it goes in terms of an appeal. Uh, you know, Jason House obviously was, he was going to file an appeal anyways. He filed an appeal on Jonathan Martinez's behalf because there was a 30-27 score, again, by Mr. Solis, in favor of Andre Ewell in a fight that most people believe that Joshua Martinez won. Only one judge on MMA decisions, that is a, a panel of media members, gave the fight to Ewell. And I think Ewell got a unanimous decision in that case, if I'm not mistaken. 
But um, I tried to see if there was any connection between Solis and Ewell and, and to no avail. Ewell's a California-based fighter. But when, you, you know, you look at what Jason House did, he filed an appeal on behalf of Jonathan Martinez. I spoke to James Cross before I learned all this stuff. Uh, I did a, a formal interview with him. It's on tsn.ca slash UFC slash video if you want to check it out. And I said to him, you know, is your manager going to file an appeal? I know he filed one for Jonathan Martinez. What about in your case? And he said, well, I think he is filing an appeal, but I don't know if he should. I, you know, it's not because I encourage them to do so. In fact, I, I'm fine with the decision. But Jason House saw that there was a really bad scorecard there and wants to get to the bottom of things. And I, you know, when you do that for your client, you know, there's a lot of uh, goodwill that's built up, I think. It shows you're going to bat for your client. You're willing to put up your own money to file this appeal. And I commend Jason House for doing so. But once this new information came to light, like now the appeal's a no-brainer. At least in the eyes of Jason House and probably James Krause as well. Now, one thing that I got, I got one bone to pick with James Krause, which is that he had mentioned what I had learned on UFC Unfiltered before my report came out. And then everybody thought that I just took the story from James. <laughs> Not James's fault, of course. I, I don't think that he, you know, cares when the story's coming out. I spoke to him about it. I gave him the information and he went went with it. But, uh, you know, people were like, hey, you just took that story from James. You didn't do any research. It's like, uh, where do you think James found that out? But, you know, I'm not trying to just pat myself on the back here. But, uh, you know, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of digging and a lot of hours and hours of legwork. Plus, we had to go through our legal department to make sure that everything was kosher going forward when I when I put the story out. So just a lot of work. And uh, work that I'm proud of, and thanks to everybody who covered the story and uh, and sent positive messages my way. I appreciate it. But uh, let's see where it goes from here. So that was two weeks ago. I mean, it's kind of dated already, but I mean, the that actual story is not dated. It's, uh, it's, it's something that needs to be covered more, if anything, in terms of commissions being held accountable for these kind of things. Let's go to Rio Rancho, New Mexico, where... The other big topic of conversation from that week is Diego Sanchez and him, in in quotes, quitting by telling the referee that he did not want to continue when he was hit with an illegal knee from Michelle Peheja in the co-main event of the evening. Now, the reason I put quitting in quotes is because it's not something that I believe. I don't think that you can accuse any fighter of quitting. People say, oh, Connor quit. He tapped out. Have you been choked before? Let Khabib Nurmagomedov put you in a in a neck crank, and and let me see if you are going to quit or he's gonna, you're going to let him break your jaw, because a neck crank, while you can go out, the first thing that's probably going to happen is he's going to snap your jaw. So I want you to sit in a neck crank from Khabib Nurmagomedov, and uh, and not quit. I want you to take a, a knee in the face from Michelle Peheja that's not a legal knee, and and knowing you're down on the scorecards, give up whatever it is, $75,000 or whatever Diego Sanchez is getting paid for that fight so that you can not quit and be a warrior. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. The game is you get your show money, and if you win, you get your win money. If they were going to give flat purses to people, then sure, you can accuse them of quitting, whatever you want. I wouldn't do that even in that situation. But to me, what Diego Sanchez did was a sound decision. Diego Sanchez said he wasn't going to fight Michelle Peheja if he didn't make weight. Does that mean he's quitting? 
Is he quitting before the fight even starts by, by saying that he's not going to fight Michelle Paheja if he doesn't get on the scale and weigh 171 pounds or less? Nobody accused him of quitting in that situation. Diego Sanchez wants a fair shake. He lost those first two rounds. In his mind, maybe he didn't lose those first two rounds. Maybe he thought he won. When you're in the moment and you're in the fight, you don't, you're not scoring the fight. You're just in it. You're doing what you can to try to win, try to survive, and try to get the better of your opponent. And uh, from hearing his corner and the, the confidence of uh, Joshua Fabia and that, that he exudes when he's doing these interviews, I wouldn't be surprised if Joshua Fabia th- thought that Diego Sanchez was up two rounds. But again, even if he's up two rounds, if you get hit with an illegal knee and you're having trouble seeing and you've been compromised and the referee says, do you want to continue? That's a discretionary call. It's not quitting. It's not, oh, you're a quitter if you, if you say you don't want to continue. Give me a break. I'd love to see anybody take a flying knee like that and, and continue the fight if, you, if you're having trouble seeing. So I don't blame Diego Sanchez in the least for telling the referee he couldn't continue and getting his win bonus. And Michelle Paheja is a reckless fighter. He does that moonsault. If he lands on your face, that's an illegal blow. You can get out of the fight on, on that situation too. If he lands on your face with 170, well, probably 190 on fight night, excuse me, pounds of force, yeah, maybe you don't want to continue. A guy just stepped on your face you, after doing a backflip. Landed on your face. Stop quitting. These fighters have to go by the rules. Somebody gets hit with a groin strike and says they can't continue. Nobody accuses them of being a quitter. Took a bad groin strike. Now, that could be a little bit different because most of the time that's ruled as unintentional. Whereas a knee to a downed opponent, a flying knee at that, or a jumping knee or whatever you want to call it, pretty heavy impact strike. Like that's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough shot to take. And even if it's a legal strike, that's a tough shot to take. So if it's an illegal strike, can only imagine what that's like. So um, Diego decided he didn't want to continue. He gets the win. And uh, that's just the way it is. That's the way the sport works. So if you want to go and call him a quitter, I mean, maybe, would you, would you say it to his face? Would you call him a quitter? A guy who's been in the UFC since UFC, the Ultimate Fighter won? Fought in four different weight classes. This is the this he's the epitome of not being a quitter. Been in the UFC forever. Continues to take difficult fights, and I think he's what one two of his last three something along those lines. Let's take a look at his record here. Yeah, he's won he's won three of his last four, and people are are still calling for this guy to retire. Oh, this guy's taking too much damage. He's got to retire. How many times has Diego Sanchez been knocked out? Twice? Three times? If you count the doctor stoppage? Diego Sanchez can do what Diego Sanchez wants to do. Listen, I know people put the onus on the media and on the UFC. You've got to tell these guys when is when. If Diego Sanchez was released from the UFC tomorrow, there's a good chance that he does bare-knuckle boxing, where he goes to a left-way tournament, He's not going to take any less damage if the UFC says, you know, we don't, we don't want your services anymore. We think, you're, we think that this, it's dangerous to your health. Do you think that his coach is going to be like, his coach and his manager, Joshua Fabi, is going to be like, ah, you know what, Diego, it's time to hang him up. Diego Sanchez is, I think, going to be fighting for another two, three years. 
Now, whether or not that's good for his health, that's not at my discretion. You know, I can I can give an opinion and say, well, maybe you know, maybe he has taken too much damage. It's not up to me. Onus isn't on the media to tell fighters to retire. You think they want to listen to us? You think Diego Sanchez is going to listen to me who's never gotten into a cage and fought another another man? Because I say I say Diego Sanchez should retire. That like that means something to Diego Sanchez? No, it doesn't mean anything to Diego Sanchez. It would be. I feel like I'd be coming off as holier than thou if I said, this guy, it's time for this guy to retire. Not up to me. I didn't say BJ Penn, it's time for him to retire. It's not, not my decision. Like, I can, I can yell it till the cows come home. I can say, oh, this guy needs to retire. It's time. Maybe it is. It's not up to me. I can't, this guy's a grown man. I can't tell him what to do. The UFC can't tell him what to do. They can pull him aside and suggest to him that, may, hey, maybe your best days are behind you. Diego Sanchez... Is a, has the utmost of belief in himself. He's got a he's got a crazy amount of self confidence, almost an unparalleled amount. Like he might be one of the more confident fighters to ever be in the UFC. And you think that me saying that he should retire is going to make any difference in his thought process? Me or any other journalist for that matter? If every journalist signed a petition and said now is the time for Diego Sanchez to retire. And it was hand-delivered to him by the president of the MMAJA, Ben Folks. Drives down from Montana to New Mexico. Says, Mr. Mr. Sanchez, I have a letter, notarized letter, signed by 300 of my peers in the MMA media. 306 of them have podcasts. We think it's time for you to retire. What do you think Diego Sanchez is going to say to Ben Folks? I don't mean to bring Ben into this, but he's the president of the MMAJA. So he's the guy that I'm appointing to be the person that, on behalf of all journalists, will go to the home of Diego Sanchez and hand him this notarized letter that's signed by every single MMA journalist known to man. 300 of them, 306 of them have podcasts. Me being one of those with podcasts, with a podcast. They hand him this letter. Ben Folks says, here you go, Mr. Sanchez. You can do with this what you will, but we think it's time. Diego Sanchez will throw that into his fireplace. Or he'll frame it and keep it as a souvenir because it's a notarized letter signed by 300 people, which would be kind of cool to, a cool thing to keep. Especially because he's another win in the UFC. He's like, I told all these guys. All 300 of these people were wrong. I got another win in the UFC. We need to pipe down a little bit when it comes to the, the career choices of these individuals. It's not for us to decide. If you think it's for us to decide, I mean, you're barking up the wrong tree. And you, you must think that we have more clout than we do. So, sorry, I'm not going to be the guy that's calling for fighters to retire. That's just not me. I don't want to be that guy. I can say it might be time to hang it up, hang them up, but I, I'm not going to. I know that it doesn't affect somebody one way or the other. And if they want to continue with their career, I'm, like, I'm not going to step in and be like, this is the wrong move. It's not for me. That's not my decision. If I'm 76 years old and... Uh, Interviewing someone and I, you know, I've, my my back's all hunched and uh, my, my I've got no hair and you know I can't hear what the other guy's saying to me, the, the the fighter. And they say, you know what, Aaron, I think it's time for you to retire as a journalist. You can't hear what these guys are saying. Your hearing aid is not strong enough, and uh, clearly standing up for this amount of time is impacting your posture. And you can barely walk, and these guys are in their twenties, and you're seventy six. Time for you to retire as a journalist. So you think that I'm going to give up my, like, my income, my, my, my livelihood at age 76? I mean, hopefully I'll be able to at that age. Hopefully I'll have enough money saved up that I can, I can walk away at that age. But 
You think that I'm going to listen to some guy behind the keyboard? If they have keyboards and when, when I'm that old? That says, oh, Aaron, it's tight. I mean, Aaron, you can barely hear these guys. Time, time, to, time to retire. I don't think so. I'm not going to tell you to retire. If you work, uh, if you're a truck driver and you, uh, you're having trouble staying awake, you can you have to drive for two less hours a night because you don't want to injure anybody in a in a in a accident. You can't stay up for as long as you used to when you were younger. I'm not going to tell you to retire from trucking. That's how you put food on the table for your family. You think I? You think you're going to listen to me if I me a guy who does media? I'm going to tell somebody who drives a truck for a living that now they're past their prime. Come on. I know it's different. These people are taking damage, and it's a, you know, but the general premise that we have any sort of say over what these guys do is uh, it's ludicrous. So, you know, we can we can we can scream to the high heavens that it's time for these guys to retire. Time to walk away. You think they're going to listen to me? I'd be shocked if they did. I mean, if they listened to me, I'd be I'd I'd pat myself on the back and say, "Wow, I guess I'm a little bit more important than I thought I was." But they're not going to listen to me. That's a spoiler alert for you, folks. All right. The main event, UFC Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Jan Bojovich versus Corey Anderson. The rematch. Corey Anderson got the better of Bojovich big time in the first fight. This time, not so much. Jan Bojovich with a, a counter that drops Corey Anderson and finishes him just over three minutes into the first round. A very, very impressive win for Jan Bojovich, who was on a tear. Bojovich has won. Seven of his last eight fights has only lost to Tiago Santos. In a, that was a barn burner of a fight. But he's beaten Devin Clark, Jared Cannonier, Jimmy Manoa, Nikita Krilov, Luke Rockhold, Jacare Souza, and Corey Anderson. Since October of 2017, those were his wins. He's been on a tear. Does he deserve a title shot? Absolutely. But not now. Now is the time where you reward Dominic Reyes for being the first person to possibly beat John Jones in the eyes of the public. I think that Jan Bojovic still deserves a title fight. I think that if you run back Reyes and Jones, that doesn't mean you're taking a title shot away from Jan Bojovic. It doesn't mean he's getting the next title shot. But I think that what you should do, if you're the UFC, and you make the fight that the people want to see, that's what you purport to do, even though Bojovic had a very impressive showing, turned a lot of heads, including Corey Anderson's, that you have to make the Reyes rematch next, even though it's coming off a loss. It's happened before. Ariel Hawani pointed out, um, I think somebody actually, I think New York Rick actually pointed out to him, the uh, Hua versus Machida rematch. That's a perfect example. I think most people thought that Hua won on the scorecards. The decision went Machida's way. They did the rematch. Who won? Now, that's not to say that Reyes is going to be John Jones if there's a rematch. But John Jones certainly looked excited when Jan Bojovic won. And Jan Bojovic was pointing at him. John Jones in the front row. It's in New Mexico. It's in his backyard. John Jones points back at him. He smiles. Let's set this thing up, baby. He seemed a little bit too excited. Me, personally, I think it should be Dominic Reyes next. I'm, I know that I put out a poll after the event. And it was, I think, about 53 for Bojovic, 47 for Reyes. But that's right after Jan Bojovic had a, an emphatic knockout. Let's let the, the dust settle a little bit. Let's wait maybe a week or two, see how the, you know, the public is receiving things, see what the public wants. And if the UFC purports to make the fights that people want, fight that people want, I think they should make the Reyes fight. But there's not really a wrong answer here. I think that Jan Bojovic has earned it as well. And if you want to make Reyes win again, 
I think that's a mistake because I think that if Reyes, if you risk putting Reyes in another fight, and maybe Reyes's confidence is a little bit shaken because he's got his first career loss, maybe he's more tentative, maybe he doesn't win. I think you're you're losing a very valuable fight for the UFC. I think that there's a lot of capital in Jones versus Reyes. There's more upside in Jones versus Reyes than there is in John versus Jan. John versus Jan might be a good fight, but I think that there's there. I don't think that there's a single bone in John Jones's body. No, no pun intended with bones. I don't think that there are any bones in his body that doubt that he can beat Jan Blachowicz. But when you're in there with Dominic Reyes and people think that he won, maybe there's a little bit of doubt in his bones about that one. Maybe just a bit. Don't know why my voice is getting higher on this one, but maybe just a bit. I think that was a Larry David in me. That pretty, pretty good. Pretty good chance that John Jones might not want to do that rematch against Reyes. Not that he's ducking him or anything, but I think that in his mind, it's like, okay, let's let's get some money from Jan Blachowicz, win that fight, and then maybe, then maybe we can explore a rematch, or maybe I'll go to heavyweight, and we'll just leave that question unanswered. But I don't think that that's the right thing to do. I think that you, you have to make that Reyes versus Jones rematch, have it headline a, a pay-per-view event, maybe in August or something, <laughs> or, or maybe you do a... Co-main event in July. I don't think that it's in the cards for uh, April or for May or June. Those are likely going to be events in other countries. But I think if you did International Fight Week, you did Usman versus uh, Masvidal. You did Jones versus Reyes, and then maybe you do Israel's next fighter thing along those lines. If Israel beats Yoel Romero, of course, I you know I don't want to. Consider that one a slam dunk because it sure isn't. But uh, that would be a nice international fight week. Maybe you do Connor's next fight on that card too. I mean, you could really blow it out of the water if you wanted to. Or you wait till August and see what's in the in the cards for August. Don't know where that pay-per-view will be, but uh, by process of elimination, Canada would make a lot of sense. John Jones has fought in Canada many times. He's from upstate New York on the border. So let's see how this one plays out. But if you're giving me a vote, I'm taking Dominic Reyes. And I again, I think that John and his team were way too excited that Jan Blachowicz won. Not that they don't think they could have beaten Corey Anderson either. But that's, uh, that's just the sense that I got from watching that. The UFC heads to Auckland, New Zealand this weekend. Tomorrow night. Paul Felder, Dan Hooker, solid main event. This is actually a really, really exciting main event in my eyes. I think that this is about as evenly matched a fight in perhaps the strongest division in the UFC right now. Now, Felder is coming up a bit of a controversial win over a man who has previously beaten, I guess, both Felder and Hooker, Edson Barbosa. This was a rematch for Felder, and he won a uh, split decision. And I think, like, if I go to MMA Decisions, I'd be interested to see what percentage of uh, the media members that scored the fight had it for uh, Felder over Barboza. Let's take a quick look over here. Yeah, so three media members had it for Felder, and then about, like, a 12, it looks like, had it for Barboza. But uh, it was a, a close fight, and I think that one that, uh, well, the majority of people thought Barboza won. I don't think you can call it a robbery or anything along those lines. But uh, Paul Felder, as a result, has won... Five of his last six fights, including uh, when, I guess, and if you look at his fights just in the 
lightweight division. He's won his last five. He moved up to welterweight and lost a split decision to Mike Perry. So uh, he's on a bit of a roll right now, and so is Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker is uh, still quite young in his career, 30 years old, but he's, he's been around for some time. Joined the UFC um, back in 2014, so he's been in, in the UFC for almost six years. And uh, he was 24 years old when he joined, just turned 30. And uh, he's won six of his last seven. So he's on a bit of a roll, too. His only loss coming to the aforementioned Edson Barboza. But wins over James Vick, Ali Akinta, Gilbert Burns. Like, those are good wins. Mark Dikeese, who looks uh, who's looked really good lately. Jim Miller, who's always a tough out. Ross Pearson, who also was a tough out, who he actually finished. And if you look back at Ross Pearson, how many times did he, had he gotten finished prior to fighting uh, Dan Hooker? You know, he'd lost some, uh, some fights. But uh, actually, he had only gotten he got finished by Ally Akinta and Cub Swanson previously, and uh, I think that's it in terms of uh, getting knocked out. So uh, Dan Hooker was able to to finish Ross Pearson, which was no uh, no easy task. And uh, you know, since then, we've uh, we've seen him look quite good. He's been uh, on a bit of a roll. So. We've got uh, two of the top ten fighters in the division going toe-to-toe. Paul Felder finally obliges the request of Dan Hooker, who called out Felder when Felder had interviewed him previously. Now they're both top ten fighters and uh, trying to make some way, make their way up the, uh, the rankings in the stacked lightweight division. And it's a fight that I, uh, I think actually has a, a lot of promise in the main event in, uh, in Auckland. And I really like the co-main event, too, Jimmy Crute against uh, Michael Olegzaychuk. Oleg Zaychek is a, a berserker. Like He comes forward, he hits you with big body shots, tries to just put it on you, with, throws all of his best stuff at you in the first three, four minutes of the fight. If you can get through that, there's a good chance you're going to win the fight. And Jimmy Crute is very versatile, was undefeated up until recently when he lost to Misha Surkinov with that gorgeous Peruvian necktie uh, finish in Vancouver last year, late last year, in September. And uh, Michael Oleg Zaychek, has only lost one fight since uh, coming to the UFC. He had his uh, no contest against uh, Khalil Roundtree after testing positive for Clomaphene after that event. Knocked out John Volante in the first round. Knocked out Gaji Murad Antigulov in the first round. But then uh, suffered the unfortunate Von Flew fate against uh, Ovin St. Prue. He was hitting St. Prue with some good stuff in the first round, but then uh, Got caught in the Von Flu choke or the Von Pru choke, whatever you'd like to call it. At this point, it should probably be called the either the St. Pru choke or the Von Pru choke if you'd like to pay homage to both Jason Von Flu and Ovin St. Pru. Weird that like they both have double last names that rhyme, like Von Flu and St. Pru. But I digress. Jimmy Crute against Ole Zaychuk. I think it's going to be a really fun fight. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that one. And we get to see what Karolina Kovalkiewicz has left in the tank as she faces on Jan Janan. Jan Shannon had beaten uh, Angela Lee, Angela Hill rather, in her last fight. Angela Lee is, of course, uh, in one championship. But uh, beat Angela Hill, a controversial unanimous decision, which is weird to hear. But uh, I think a lot of people had Hill winning that fight. Hill actually will be fighting earlier on the card in the second fight of the night against Loma Luke Boonmi. But... Uh, I think that we've got uh, an interesting card here when you look at uh, who's on this particular card. 
This main main card is uh, interesting. Has uh, Kovalkiewicz and Jan Janana, as mentioned. Ben Sassoli against uh, Marcos Rogerio de Lima. De Lima has uh, moved up to the heavyweight division as of 2018 when he uh, beat Adam Vizorek. But uh, he lost via arm triangle choke to Stefan Struve in his last time out. Basically, it will be a year ago to the day that he's fighting against Ben Sassoli. Now, Sassoli lost against uh, Greg Hardy in his last outing and uh, is trying to get his first UFC win in his backyard. Brad Riddell, a training partner of Dan Hooker, Israel Adesonia, Alexander Volkanovsky, he's one of the striking coaches at City Kickboxing, will take on Magomed Mustafayev. They're certainly not giving him an easy matchup in New Zealand. Um, Mustafayev looked fantastic in his comeback bout against uh, Rafael Fiziev. Last April, had that spinning back kick. Prior to that, he hadn't fought since 2016 when he lost to Kevin Lee. So he hasn't been super active over the last three years. Only one fight in that time. And now he's uh, turning around and facing Brad Riddell, who I think is a really talented fighter. This is going to be a, one of the more fun fights uh, on the card because you got a really technical striker in Brad Riddell and uh, Mustafayev, who's got, um, you know, I think a combat sambo background, but also has uh, incredible striking credentials. And then uh, opening the main card, Kevin Aguilar against Zubaira Tuhugov. I think Tuhugov is going to implement his game plan, which is control. Try to take Aguilar down, keep him down, avoid submissions. And uh, Aguilar, I think, has a lot of ways to win this fight, but Tuhugov has probably the best way to win this fight. And uh, looking forward to seeing Zubaira Tuhugov back in action. He had only fought once since May of 2016 against Hanato Moicano, got suspended by USADA. Ended up having a split draw against Lerone Murray in his last time out, or Lerone Murphy, rather, in his last time out, a fight that he was widely expected to win. Fell short and uh, ended up with a draw. And now he's back in action against Kevin Aguilar, a much tougher opponent than uh, Lerone Murphy. No disrespect to Mr. Murphy. At least on paper, he's a much, t- much tougher matchup. And in the preliminary card, Jalen Turner against newcomer uh, Joshua Kulibayo. Kuli- who uh, I don't know too much about, but uh, Jalen Turner's been kind of hit and miss in his UFC career. Lost to Matt Favola in his last fight. Knocked out Kellen Porter, or Kellen Potter, actually, who's actually on this card as well, in uh, early last year, short notice opponent. And got finished by uh, Vicente Luque at UFC 229, where he uh, took the fight at welterweight as a short notice opponent. So he is 1-2 uh, and two in his UFC career, but a guy with a lot of really good intangibles is Jalen Turner. He's got a, a very long reach, 77-inch reach at 155 pounds. That's pretty long. Very tall for the division. And someone who I think is going to um, win here. I think that uh, he's going to beat this opponent. But we'll see. I mean, he needs to he needs to show up for this one because it could be his last fight in the UFC if he doesn't. Jake Matthews against uh, Emil Mech. Emil Mech was in the news recently uh, when they talked about Diego Sanchez's manager slash trainer slash spiritual advisor. Josh Fabia, who we discussed uh, earlier in, in this uh, this podcast, apparently chased Emil Mech around with a knife as part of his training in uh, at the UFC at Performance Institute and was asked to stop doing that. But uh, Jake Matthews against Emil Mech. Jake Matthews' progression hasn't been as uh, as... Steady as I think a lot of people thought it would be. He's still only 25 years of age. But uh, when you first saw him hone his skills in the UFC, I mean, he's been in the UFC since 2014, like almost six years. 
And uh, you can do the math. He's 25 years of age. He was 19 when he made his debut. He showed so much upside. Upside's always been the word with uh, Josh Matthews. But when are we going to see that, that next step? Now, I thought we had seen it against Li Jinglang when they fought in February of 2018. But since then, he just hasn't looked as good. So this is going to be an important fight for him. He needs to show that he can beat Emil Mech. And I think he kind of has the blueprint from when Mech fought uh, Kamaru Usman, who claimed he was only 30% for that fight. With the takedowns and the control. If J- Jake Matthews can take down Mech and control him, should be an easy night for him. But uh, if it's on the feet, could be a long night for him. Or a short night, depending on how you look at it. Uh, the aforementioned Kellen Potter back in action against Song Kanan. Kai Car France against uh, Tyson Nam. That should be a fun one. That one is uh, one that I'm particularly looking forward to because you got two pretty heavy hitters in the flyweight division going toe-to-toe. Kai Car France trying to bounce, uh, bounce back off a loss. City Kickboxing has had so much momentum and, uh, you know, he, he took a little bit of that away when he fought, uh, I think it was back in December against Brandon Moreno, looking for a quick turnaround now against uh, Tyson Nam fighting in his backyard in New Zealand. Loma, Luke Boon Mee against uh, Angela Hill. Angela Hill taking another short notice uh, fight. I think she's, this is going to be the sixth time she's fought since the beginning of last year. That's activity right there. And Angela Hill seems to love fighting. She's more of a Muay Thai style striker, and she's going to be facing Luke Boonmi, whose background is in Muay Thai, and competitive Muay Thai. If Hill can get this to the ground, I think she's going to have no problem with Luke Boonmi. And if it's on the feet, I still think she can hang with her, but why, why keep it on the feet if you know you're going to have more success on the ground? And I think that's what Angela Hill will look to do. And uh, Priscilla Cachuera and uh, Shanna Dobson in what is likely a Loser Leaves Town match here in the UFC to open up the card. We had uh, a fight that was booked between Maki Patolo and uh, Takashi Sato, Maki Patolo unfortunately fell ill and was uh, is unable to compete. And the the really tough part about the story is uh, one of the the top reporters in terms of Asian MMA and someone who uh, I think you really should give a follow to on Twitter. His uh, handle is JHKMMA. And that's uh, John Hyun Ko. He's the host of Kumite TV. I watch a lot of his interviews. Very good. He reported that uh, a source close to Takashi Sato said that Sato actually missed his dad's funeral so that he could stay in in um, Florida where he was training. His dad had fallen ill and was, uh, I mean, they think that he had known that his dad was likely going to uh, pass away and decided to stay in Florida and uh, not go to his dad's funeral so he can continue being focused for this fight and uh, pay tribute to his father. And uh, sadly, he's been robbed of that opportunity. And I, I really feel for the guy. I think that that's... Uh, that's really tragic to hear. Um, and uh, again, I think that uh, I trust uh, John and his source that uh, this is a true story. And uh, if, if that's the case, I uh, I think that that's really, really uh, terrible to hear. And I, I hope that uh, Sato is able to spend some time with his family now that this fight has been called off. Go back home to Japan, spend time with his family, and uh, unfortunately won't be able to fulfill what he was hoping to do by... Um, paying tribute to his father. All right, well, that wraps us up uh, on radio. On the podcast, we've got some uh, interviews to get to. All right, some interviews to get to. We uh, spoke to Dan Hooker, Colby Covington, and Deontay, Deontay Wilder this week. And I wanted to just uh, play some of those interviews so that you can, uh, you can hear them for yourself in case you uh, didn't get a chance to listen to them. So uh, without further ado, 
Joining us on the show, Colby Chaos Covington, who is uh, on his way to Universal Studios when he joined us, and he joins us now on the TSN MMA show. I'm joined by Colby Chaos Covington. Colby, you were at the Univision Latino Music Awards yesterday in Miami. I'm guessing you didn't wear that cowboy hat. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to get shot, you know, and I wanted to keep my life so I can come back to the UFC Octagon and win another world title. So, you know, but, you know, the, you know they embraced me well, the Latin community. They're they're very cool. A lot of the people were asking for interviews. You know, my good friend that invited me as his guest was uh, Bo Casper. So, you know, that it was it was fun. I had a great time and uh, nothing but respect to the Latin community. And now you're in a car, as, as we can tell, and you're on your way to Orlando. So you're going to Universal Park, you told me. That's right, man. It's my birthday weekend. So, you know, I'm going to go up to Universal this weekend, have some fun, hit the theme parks, you know, go have some good food up there and, and just enjoy my life. So, you know, it's, it's a busy life for the, for the best fighter in the world. Have you scouted it out? Are there any particular rides you're looking to get on? Uh, yeah, we've been scouting it up a little bit. I, I think that... Uh, the main one that everybody wants that everybody wants to talk about and that we were talking about going to is Islands of Adventure. We've heard that it's a pretty good time there. We also got tickets to Volcano Bay. It's like a it's like a water park, so we're gonna go out there and enjoy some good water slides and, and get a nice little suntan in, in South Florida. I hear the Hulk roller coaster is very good as well. But let's get to uh, get down to business. So in recent interviews, you've said that the UFC have actually expressed interest in doing a rematch between yourself and Kamaru Usman. Now, you've been in a situation similar to this before where they're trying to book a fight. Maybe the dollars aren't adding up on one end and someone else is the recipient of the title shot. Are you comfortable being in that role this time where you could end up with a title shot if perhaps Jorge Masvidal is asking for a little bit too much money? Yeah, absolutely. But... I mean, I feel like I'm already in that position where I deserve a rematch. If you look at uh, how bad Mark Goddard f***ed it up at UFC 245, I mean, if any real journalist, if they'd peek into it and do the real journalism facts of what happened, you know, look at him. He didn't even come out and address the real problems of the fight. He didn't address the, the liver shot. He didn't address stopping the fight and changing the momentum for the eye poke. He didn't address the hits to the back of my head. And I was intelligently defending the back of my head, and that's when he stopped it. Like, he didn't want to come out there. He just wanted to come out and play victim. So Mark Goddard is a bitch, and he's not a man. So anybody that calls that guy a man is lying. With 50 seconds left in the fight, he stops it. I guess that's not your only problem with his refereeing that night, but with 50 seconds left, you were down on the scorecards. Do you think it would have made any sort of difference if he didn't stop the fight? Do you, would you still have been upset with his refereeing? Uh, I mean, I was winning on the scorecards. You know, I won the first, the second, and the fourth round, you know. So I was up three rounds to one. And if it goes to the scorecards, I win the fight. And, and I'm world champion once again. So, you know, it, it's a, it was a robbery. It was a fix, and it was corrupt. And I can't believe none of the, the journalists that are actually supposed to be so-called journalists because we know they didn't get journalism degrees, so they're not real journalists, like someone like Stephen A. Smith. But that's another uh, story. But why aren't they coming out talking about the fight? Why? Why are people complaining about how shitty Mark Goddard, Mark Mark not so Goddard, uh, robbed me in the fight? All they want to talk about are the judges for the Dominic Reyes John Jones fight. But why aren't they talking about how bad Mark Goddard f***ed me out of, of a world title at, in December? I think, though, on the official scorecards, and whether or not the judges did a good job is always up for debate, but I think had the fight gone to conclusion, you would have lost, I think it was either a split decision or a, a majority decision. Um, do you think, I, I think you probably had the fight scored, I guess, first, second, and fourth round, but uh, have you looked at that? Have you looked at the judging for the fight as well? Yeah, I did look at the judging, and, 
you know, once again, there's a, a big difference in, in, uh, in gaps of some of the judges, you know, like how can one judge have it three, one for me. And then the other judge has it three, one for Usman. That makes no sense. I mean, it was clear that I was winning the exchanges and I was rocking them on the feet and, you know, I was getting the better of the exchanges, but you know, how, how is it that one judge can score a three, one, one way and three, one, another way, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's incompetent, uh, incompetent judging incompetent officiating and, and, uh, you know, they need to get that right. Have you gone back and watched uh, the tape of the fight? And if so, is there anything that you feel like you could have fixed that next time around you'll do a little bit better? Anything? You know, I mean, obviously, you're going to be critical of yourself uh, at the end of any performance, win or lose. Is there anything that you saw that perhaps you can shore up for the next time out? Yeah, definitely. I've seen a lot of, a lot of holes that were glaring in his game that I could expose. But, you know, I thought I was getting the better of the, of the exchanges, so I didn't need to go to the wrestling or make it an MMA fight. I just feel like I'm a better striker than him. So, you know, there's some things I could do to mix it up and be different next time. But the thing is, is, you know, I was playing with everybody before, you know, I was touring with all the journalists, toying with all the fans. Now I'm fucking serious. Now I'm pissed. Wait till you see what I do when I come back this time. Now that I'm fucking pissed, I ain't playing no more. Would you take a non-title fight if it meant uh, a, a rematch given a win? Uh, if I'm getting paid correctly, absolutely. You know, I'm a prize fighter. So if they want to put up the money that, that, that I deserve as the people's champion, as America's champion, as Donald Trump's favorite fighter, then absolutely I will come back and fight anybody because that's what the best fighter in the world does. Speaking of President Trump, while you were at the uh, Univision uh, Latin Music Awards yesterday, he was doing a rally in Colorado and uh, he had a special guest speaker, Dana White. Did you get a chance to see that? I didn't get a chance to catch that yet, but I did see some of the pictures on social media that Dana was there. That's pretty cool. You know, it's, that's awesome. You know, that the Dana's showing support for, uh, you know, the greatest pe president in the history of the USA. You know, he's making America great again and he's going to keep America great. You know, our economy's better than it's ever been. You know, unemployment's the lowest it's ever been. So, you know, Donald Trump's doing great things. He loves the troops, you know, and, and you can't give enough thanks to the troops for what they do for our country, the red, white, and blue, sacrificing their lives for our freedoms, you know. So, you know, thank you to the Trumps. Thank you to the troops. And uh, let's keep America great. 2020, baby. Dana's showing his support for Trump, but is he showing his support for you? Have you guys chatted at all since the last fight? Have you mended any fences? Uh, we haven't chatted, but we don't ever chat. You know, that's not what our relationship is. You know, we're doing business together. We're not friends. You know, I've said it a million times. This isn't the ultimate friends championships. This is the ultimate fighting championships. And I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make money. So, you know, it's a business relationship. And I know he's been talking to my agency, my management, Dan Lambert and the Ballinger Group. So, you know, I'm sure they had some good things to say. And, you know, 2020 is going to be a big year. This summer I'm returning an international fight week. And by the end of the year in December, I will I will fight again. Is that confirmed you're going to be fighting regardless at international fight week, whether it's against Usman or someone else? I mean, no, I mean, we have to see how it plays out, but that just, I mean, that's a good time frame for me to get back in there. I'm healthy. I'm back in the gym and American top team training every day again. So, you know, I feel great. I'm improving. I'm still young in the game. And, you know, I, I just, I enjoy the process. I, I enjoy getting better and, and uh, the best is yet to come. You mentioned American top team. Are you still comfortable training there? Dustin Poirier was on Ariel Hawani's show on Monday. He said that the two of you might have had some sort of run, and he wouldn't really go into detail, but I know you'll go into detail with me because that's the kind of relationship we have. Absolutely. There wasn't any running. He was just 
You know, he came up to the mat and he was he was wanting to get a peek at the best fighter in the world. He didn't say anything. He kept his mouth shut because he knew that if he's going to say anything, that it's going to be he's going to regret it. and He's not going to like the hospital bill he's going to have to pay because, you know, if we fight in the UFC octagon, then at least, you know, he can get the, his hospital bills paid by the UFC. So, you know, he's acting. It's just funny how he's coming out acting like Dan's trying to protect me when really Lambert's just trying to protect him from getting hurt. So, you know, all these guys, they, they want to say things to the media. They want to say things, but they don't want to do things. You know, they don't they don't want to get in a UFC octagon. They, they don't really want to come do something. They just want to say something to the media and, and then have coaches pull them back and, and uh, you know, let let the drama look like there's drama. And, and, and really, that's that's not real, you know, and that's what, that's what he is. You know, he's fake, and, and uh, you know, I got, I got nothing to say about him. Another instance of that is 50 Cent. You said that uh, you would box him with one arm behind your back for charity, uh, and I haven't heard a word out of him since. Has he reached out to you? Has his team reached out to you to try to set this thing up? There's been some some talk, you know, a couple of celebrity boxing uh, companies that were that were hit me up wanting to do the fight. Uh, you know, 50 Cent's all talk. We found that he's just an internet troll these days. You know, he wants to talk all that, shit, but he don't want to walk all that talk. So he's not like me. He doesn't talk the talk and walk the walk. So 50 Cent's a bitch. He can't beat nothing. What the f can he? What the f is he ever beat besides his spouse? Typical Hollywood fucking scum. 50 Cent's a fucking dirtbag. He always claims to get shot nine times. If he got shot one time by me, he wouldn't get back up. And let's be honest. Let's clarify it. 50 Cent, you're the only bitch that got your jaw wired shut. You're a fucking clown. Stay in Hollywood, you fucking scumbag. All right, fair enough. Enjoy Universal Studios. Take care, Aaron. From Colby Chaos Covington, we go to the headliner of the fight between Dan Hooker and uh, Paul Felder. And it is Dan Hooker who is fighting in his backyard in New Zealand against Paul Felder looking to move his way up the rankings. He joins us now on the TSN MMA show. He's in the main event of UFC Fight Night in his hometown of Auckland, New Zealand. His first ever UFC main event against Paul Felder. This all started a couple years back. You called out Paul Felder to his face. He had a suit. He had a microphone in his hand. What made you work up the nerve to do that? Oh, I didn't really have to work up much nerve. I, I, I knew I wanted a ranked opponent um, following that fight. And I would rather do it face-to-face. -face. I'd feel like a bit of a on our back and ignoring him and then getting on Twitter and calling someone else. So I'd rather do it. I'd rather do it to the man standing in front of me. It seems like you guys have built up some real animosity heading into this one. Does that help you? Do you want to have animosity going in? Do you feel like you fight better with emotion? Uh, either, either or, you know, whether I'm respectful to a fighter or there's a bit of hostility. Um, I work well, I work well either way. I think uh, when, when that cage door shuts, it doesn't matter whether you're my best friend or my worst enemy, I'm coming. You mentioned to Kumite TV that uh, this animosity came from him uh, making fun of your last name. Why, why do you feel like he crossed the line with that? Uh, well, it's just he, he's a man of respect, right? He's a, he's a pretty respectful guy in nature, so I thought it was... Um, I thought he crossed the line. You just don't... That's something you don't do. Here in New Zealand, you don't do that. Um, you don't um, disrespect someone's family name and expect, uh, expect nothing to happen. You've got a lot of teammates uh, on this particular card. Is it good to have a lot of bodies to work out with heading into this event? 
Yeah, we've got, a, we've got a big team here at camp and the energy of the gym has been pretty incredible, um, getting everyone down and uh, it, it's just been slowly building and building. We had a lot of friends and family there on, on the weekend for our last hard session and it was pretty, um, pretty incredible. You know, in doing research for this particular interview, I looked up your name on Twitter to see if there were any articles written about you. I noticed there's a lot of hatred towards you because you've been so fired up about this particular fight. Do you read any of these comments online? Do they, do they rub you the wrong way at all? Do I, do I read social media comments and get upset? That's like stepping in dog <laughs> and that's like seeing a dog on the ground and then, and then walking through it instead of walking around it. I, I, I tend to walk around dog <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. I was wondering where you were going with that. Did you come up with that on the fly? <laughs> uh, I've seen it, I've heard it before and uh, it, that, one, that one really stuck with me. Do you feel any added pressure right now? I mean, Israel Adesanya is the champion, Volkanovski the champion. You guys are having so much success. Or does that just get you more fired up to, to hopefully expedite becoming a champion yourself? Yeah, I feel like um, pressure is not the right word. I feel like uh, more motivation, more, um, more clarity to, to see that my, my goals are realistic and uh, very achievable. Your opponent, Paul Felder, his last fight against uh, Barboza. Did you watch that back? Do you feel like he won that fight? Uh, I scored up for Barboza. I fought Barboza one at the time. And, and I would have I liked to rematch Barboza here in Auckland in the main event. I thought that would have been an incredible fight. But he didn't get the win. Paul got the win. Paul's here. And uh, that's just the way it goes. You know those uh, inflatable bags? You, you punch them and they pop back up. That's what it was like watching you with Barboza. You just would not go away in that fight. What, what gave you that kind of perseverance as you fought him? It seems like whatever he hit you with, you just bounced right back up. Uh, well, I'm not made of jelly beans. So <laughs> uh, I'm not just going to go away. You know, you've got to get me out of there. Your teammate, Israel Adesonia, he won Sportsman of the Year in New Zealand. What does that mean to see this sport grow as much as it has? You've been a professional for 11 years, and to see him honored on such a big stage, what did that mean to you as, as a New Zealander? Yeah, well, it did a lot for the mainstream audience, you know. A lot of the, a lot of the mainstream media caught on to that very quickly and, and were putting it on the 6 o'clock news um, on every channel, so it was pretty incredible to see that achievement. Your coach, Eugene Behrman, he's way ahead of the curve, it seems like, uh, compared to a lot of these other coaches, both in terms of um, tactical and, and technology. You guys are using something called the InfraScanner. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and why um, he's implemented that in your training? Um, no, that's just being used at, at shows here in New Zealand. So fighters here, uh, on our on our biggest national show in King of the Ring, it's a big kickboxing show. Um, just to make sure there's no previous brain bleeds, you know, MRIs are, are very expensive, so a lot of fighters can't afford. So it's a, just a cheaper and effective way to make sure that people stay um, healthy and safe in our sport. And finally, on Instagram, you post a lot of pictures of your daughter Zoe. How's fatherhood been treating you? She's uh, she's very cute. I saw the picture of you guys playing video games together. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that definitely adds a bit more motivation and uh, a reason to get, get back out there. Yeah, you mentioned the motivation. How, how has that changed you as a fighter, uh, becoming a father? Yeah, well, it definitely um, 
you know, it goes from being a decision like, oh, I want to win this fight because, you know, now, now, now I have to, I have to win because I, I, I see her and I see, um, I need to make, uh, I need to make her comfortable. That's interesting. So you have more of a sense of urgency as a result of that because you're not just fighting for yourself, you're fighting for an entire family. Definitely, that's a, um, exactly it. So uh, heightened sense of urgency. All right, Dan. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's the main event, UFC Fight Night in Auckland, New Zealand, this Saturday. It's, on, it's Sunday, I guess, in uh, New Zealand when it takes place, and it takes place on TSN5. You can watch all the action right here in Canada. That was Dan the Hangman Hooker joining us on the TSN MMA show. And uh, I got to speak to uh, Deontay Wilder, who is headlining what I think is the biggest heavyweight boxing fight, and I'm sure a lot of others would agree, in maybe 10, 20 years. A very, very coveted, anticipated rematch between Tyson Fury and... Uh, Deontay Wilder, where both men will make $28 million, according to a report from Mike Coppinger of The Athletic. Wow, that's a, that's a big chunk of change, and they're worth every penny. Because this, that first fight was awesome. I expect this fight to be awesome. I don't know if it's going to go all 12 rounds like it did last time. I, I would venture a guess that it will not. Now, who the last, last man standing will be is uh, anyone's guess. Deontay Wilder confident that it will be him, and he joins us now on the TSN MMA show. He is the WBC heavyweight champion of the world, the CEO of the Bomb Squad, Deontay Wilder. In the first fight, you hit Tyson Fury with a shot that would have put 99.9% of men on this earth to sleep. What's going through your mind when you uh, see him suddenly sit up uh, after he takes that shot? You know, uh, I had two emotions going through my, my mind, you know, and through my body. You know, uh, the first emotion, I was, uh, I was very surprised that he did that because, like you said, you know, most guys would have would have stayed on, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have got up, especially after hitting him with the right hand and following behind with the left hook, you know, uh, and to see his eyes rolls in the, uh, rolled in the back of his head, to see the veins pulsing from his neck, and see his body look like a murder scene, man, that was that was kind of scary. I like, yo, it is over. But to see him rise and get back on his feet and to be able to be functionable and to still carry on with the fight, it was like I was uh, excited as well, too, because the fight lived up to the hype. And we all know that sometimes you can see interviews and press conferences and certain different things that, you know, the fighters is talking a great game. But when it's time to fight, you know, it just goes in the lines of the, the same Mike Tyson said, everyone has a game plan until they get hit. And when you see certain things, you know, the hype goes out the window. He's like, oh, the hype, the, the hype for the fight was better. But in this particular fight, you know, everything lived up to expectation. I don't think it's not one fan that saw that was there or saw the fight that, that took away something like this fight was boring or it, was, it didn't live up to the hype. And um, for that reason, him getting up and it being a controversial fight, it led us to this very moment now. You know, this is one of the biggest fights of our era right now. And this is, this, we can make this era the golden era. You know, we always talk about the past, but we got to reflect on, uh, on the present to prepare for the future. And right now, this is the present, and this is the biggest fight. And Saturday night, someone has got to go. And unfortunately, it's going to be his. You've won all but two fights by knockout. In your opinion, is your right hand the most devastating weapon in boxing history? Well, they're calling me the, the, the hardest hitting puncher in boxing history, and I embrace that. You know, I, I think so as well. You know, you have a lot of, of former great fighters that have came along in their own era and done a lot of amazing things and have a lot of you know, dramatic knockouts. But when you look up on their fights and the guys that they knock guys out, they did it in punches and bunches. What differentiate me from, the, from them is that I hit guys with one punch. 
and that's it. You know, I set them up, I, I, I set traps, and they come into the traps, and I hit them with one punch, and it's like, that's it. The, the lights are, are out, and I'm still overwhelmed um, uh, when I do it. You know, sometimes I sit back at home and reflect on my career and where I came and where I am now, and especially with all the knockouts, because I've been knocking guys out and putting them on the canvas for 12 years. You know, so you can only imagine my confidence and how I feel. But to see that, you know, it's like, it's an amazing feeling. It's, it's like, dang, I, I'm, I'm the one doing that. How I have so much power as a human being. My doctor even told me, he said, man, we never seen this before. Out of all my 20 years dealing with athletes, I've never seen so much power uh, one human lies in. He said, two things happen when you hit things. It's one, you're going to destroy it. Or two, it destroys you. But in, in certain cases, sometimes when I hit things, it just, it just, I destroy what I'm hitting, and it, and it hurts me as well because my right hand is like I done had multiples of, of surgeries on my arm. And that's why I only have five and a half more years, and I'm out of here, man. I'm, I'm, sick, of, I'm sick of all the surgeries. And the consequences come behind my, my action of, of having power. I said it's a blessing and a curse and all, but I embrace it all. I love to give the fans what they want to see, especially as a heavyweight, and um, because heavyweights is, is, is based off of power, and I give people that. All right, and finally, Deontay, the last time you had a rematch was in 2017 against our fellow Canadian, Berman Stavern. You won by decision the first time, then you destroyed him in a first-round KO the second time. Do you feel like having completed 12 rounds with Fury, you've now had time to kind of decode him for this rematch? Oh, yes, 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 yes. You know, when you're in there with 12 rounds with a fight of 36 minutes, you learn a lot of that person. You know, 36 minutes, you can learn, a, you can learn a, a, a person's whole life in 36 minutes. You know, let them sit and talk and you listen. But in this, in this particular case, we was in there sharing each other uh, energy inside of the ring. And I know a lot of things about he was the He was in the best shape that he's ever been in, and he brought the best of, of Fury. And uh, with all the things that he'd been through and he got himself back to this point, you know, uh, he's supposed to have been in the best shape of his life, especially going up against a guy with so much power, and that's what this, uh, the division is based off of. But um, it was, it was, it was. I'm just excited, man. I'm, uh, you know, all just talking about it and just reminiscing about the past and what to plan for the future and stuff. I'm just, I'm filled with smiles. My heart is filled with joy, and I'm just happy to be that face of boxing and uh, to have a dancing partner as well to come into boxing and be able to display our talent amongst the world. It's just an amazing feeling. I'm, I'm just looking forward to Saturday night, and you guys should be too. Well, your excitement is infectious. It's this Saturday, the most coveted rematch in uh, heavyweight history, potentially. we got Deontay Wilder against Tyson Fury. It's going to be a good one. Thank you, Deontay. Thank you guys so much. Love, peace, and God bless. That was Deontay Wilder. I'm very much looking forward to uh, watching that boxing match. I'm going to have two TVs going. Uh, actually, by the time that boxing match starts, the UFC event will be over. So I will have one TV going, and we'll be watching uh, Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury, the rematch. The lineal heavyweight champion, Tyson Fury, against the WBC heavyweight champion, Deontay Wilder. That is going to be uh, one heck of a fight. I cannot wait to watch that, personally. I'm not the biggest boxing guy, but uh, when I watched the last fight, I scored it a draw, and people freaked out on me, and then they announced it as a draw, and people freaked out at the judges, but uh, maybe I am just uh, have the same qualifications as uh, the people that are judging boxing, which is not much. I don't know if that's a shot at the boxing judges, but uh, we seem to see it the same way, and a lot of people took exception to that, but uh, I'll score this fight, and maybe people will get angry at me again.
because boxing is not my forte, and I, I will admit that. But, you know, it's always fun to score along with uh, the folks at home. So that will wrap us up. This was the TSN MMA Show. We'll be back next week. I don't know if Joe is going to be with us, but uh, we will have one Joe with us for sure that next week. It's uh, Joe Benavidez. Hopefully we'll also have Joe Valtellini. I don't know if he's going to a call a glory fight. I can't remember uh, what the, the glory schedule is like. and what the, I, think, I think he might be on the road next week. But if not, he'll be joining us and talk about his uh, bazooka kickboxing event. If you're in Toronto, I uh, think you should go check it out, bazooka, the Bazooka Invitational. Thanks, everybody. Be back next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.